Father in heaven, we pray that you would give me your spirit, that you give us all your spirit. It's, there's so much that scripture has to say about this subject, and I ask that you would somehow, someway, through this presentation, draw us a little closer to a complete and full understanding of this teaching. This message is essential. It's, it's important. It comes from the God who is unselfish, the God who is loving, the God who cares, who cares enough to tell people what they need to hear, who doesn't just tell us what we want to hear. We thank you, God, for loving us. We, we, we praise you for loving us. We've misunderstood you. We've misrepresented you, but you've loved us and you've cared for us. And so, God, um, bless us now. Uh, give me mercy. And if the message comes across in a convoluted or imperfect way. Help us to hear what we need to hear anyways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, the Bible says that the devil deceives the whole world. The devil is not honest. He doesn't tell you what he's really doing. He uses deception to do what he wants to do to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Around Satan... It is, as it were, like a facade of lies, and he uses the Antichrist of Revelation 13 to garner worship, to obtain what he has always wanted, and that is the worship that belongs to God alone. Now, if you're deceived, you're not aware that you're deceived. If a person were aware that they were deceived, then they wouldn't be deceived. And the Bible says the devil deceives not just some people, not just a few people, the devil deceives the world. You live on the world. This means that the majority of the people on this planet, according to Scripture, are deceived. Now, if you're deceived and you want to get undeceived, you have to learn something. You have to learn the truth. Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from lies, deception, and the delusions that are produced from believing a lie. If you are deceived, you're deluded, you're confused, you're living under an illusion. Lies create illusory realities that seem true, that seem real, but aren't. I want to tell you about a time when I deceived my mom. I wasn't the best student, and I came home with a really bad report card. It had several F's on it. Now, F's in America are the worst possible grade you can get. If you didn't, it would only thing you can get worse than an F is an I, which means incomplete, which means you just didn't even do enough to get graded. So I had two F's on my report card, and I brought them home, and I was really bummed because two F's mean I'm in big trouble, and I'm going to get grounded. And grounded in my home meant you don't go outside, you don't go play, you don't talk to your friends on your phone, you don't watch TV, you sit in your room every day after school until dark, you can have dinner, then you go back to bed, and that's it. You're grounded. So grounded in my house was a really, really unpleasant thing. Some of my friends, they get grounded, and guess what happens to them? Oh, no, they can't leave the neighborhood. Wow. <laughs> Those parents were so hard on their kids. <laughs> and so I'm over at my friend Matt Arnold's house, and we're talking about this report card and how I'm going to be grounded for the next several weeks, and my life is going to be over. Matt comes up with a brilliant idea. He says, hey, guess what we can do? You know, 
nests, they're kind of like partial Bs. So what we can do is we can change those two Fs to Bs. And then we'll take some of my mom's coffee that's over there in that coffee pot, and we'll pour it on your report card. It'll smear all the grades. You can take it home to your mom. You can show her the, the report card, and she won't see Fs there. She'll see Bs. Now, you know what's funny? Because when you're a kid, you think you're really smart, and you come up with these things, these ideas, and you're like, ah, I got mom. But, like, wasn't I even aware of the fact that on every report card, like every semester's report card, they place the grades from the previous semester on that report card. So, like, as the semesters unfold, this is in, in the U.S., as every semester unfolds, like, the new grades are on that report card plus the old grades, too. I didn't even think about that because all I could think about was getting out of punishment. So, we did it. We changed the F's to B's. We spilled the coffee on the report card. We took the report card to mom, showed it to mom. I'm standing there freaking out in my heart, but just playing it cool. And mom's looking at it. She looks up at me. She looks at it. It's like the judgment day. She's looking up at me. She looks down. She's looking up at me. All right. You can go outside and play. Yes. I got her. She's deceived. She's under an illusion. Now, the illusion that I've created through my lie, through my deception, is, is in a way making her act in a way that she otherwise wouldn't act. It's making her in a way drunk. Similar to being intoxicated, a person who's deceived does and acts in what does things and acts in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. She would not typically, if she knew I had Fs, say, oh, go out and play, you're free, everything's fine. If, if she knew I had Fs, she would say, uh, you're in trouble, we've got something that we need to deal with here, and everything's different. Now, my mom learned the truth. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. It was at a parent-teacher conference about three weeks later. It was horrific. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is that you know, sometimes learning the truth and becoming free from a deception, it's a very liberating and wonderful experience, and other times, it's a very terrible experience. Learning the truth can be a really, really difficult and painful experience. You know, if you're in a relationship, and the person that you're in a relationship with is being unfaithful to you, you know, you don't know it, you're deceived, you think everything is fine, and then you discover that they've been unfaithful, you've learned the truth, and you're free from the lie, and how do you feel? Right? You know, you don't know that you have a disease that's a life-threatening disease, and, and you're, you're under the illusion that your health is fine and everything's okay, and then you go to the doctor and you learn the truth, and how do you feel? You feel quite bad. At the end of the day, though, me, personally, I'd like to know the truth. Because even if the truth makes you feel bad, you, you, you know that you're not living under an illusion and you're in a better condition than you were before you knew the truth because you can do something about it. If you find out that you have a girlfriend who's cheating on you, if you have a husband who's cheating on you, you know what you can do? You can get rid of them. Yeah? If you find out the truth that you have a disease and your body's in a bad condition health-wise, you can do something about it. You can do something about it. You can deal with reality and it might be painful. So my mom learns the truth and guess how it goes. I'm driving in a car to the parent-teacher conference and I'm just sweating bullets. And I'm wondering, is the truth going to come out? Is the truth going to come out? And I kind of know it's going to come out. And I'm thinking to myself, just confess. Just tell her. Just spill the beans. I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. I'm just hanging on till the bitter end. Because, you know, who knows? We can get a flat tire. <laughs> the teacher who gave me an F could not show up because of that were the plans. Right? And so I'm just hanging on till the bitter end. And we get to the parent-teacher conference, and 
My history teacher would get me an F. He's like bagging on me the whole time. Matt sleeps in class. He's disruptive. He talks to other students. He's, he's derogatory and sarcastic in his remarks and blah, 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 blah. And uh, my mom, I can just tell she's just, she's got a short temper. She'll never hear this, so I can say that. She's got a short temper. I can tell she's getting more angry and more angry. And she, I can just tell she didn't like the guy anyways. And she's just getting madder and madder. And she looks at him and goes, man, what's your problem? He got to be in your class. And he just had the most confused look on his face. Like, what? And then he, he said, like, with the most innocent voice, no, he didn't, he didn't get a B. He had, he had an F in my and dude, my mom went from like human being to poltergeist, like just looking at me. And my math teacher was sitting next to me, and she she says to me, she looks at me, she says to me, "Is she just finding out right now?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> she said, "Oh." She like sank in her chair, like, "Oh, dude, talk about punishment, right?" She knew the truth, and the truth set her. Free from the illusion, from the deception, right? That was causing her to act in a way that she otherwise wouldn't act. That was causing her to believe in a way she otherwise wouldn't believe. Now, do you see the connection between deception and being drunk? There's a connection there, right? And truth is like a sobering agent. It wakes you up out of a drunken stupor. That's like a smack in the face. It's like cold water in the morning to the drunk. Wakes you up. Now, we as Christian believers should want to know the truth at all costs, right? Know Jesus who is the truth and know his word that is the truth. Now, in uh, our pursuit of doing that this morning, in discovering uh, a little bit more about Babylon and its fall, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. <coughs> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, we read together, and the Bible says in verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. He's talking about the second coming. Verse 1 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church is talking to them about the second coming of Jesus. He says, don't let anyone deceive you, for the, that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of perdition. I'm going to stop right there. So here's, here's what the Apostle Paul is talking about to the Christian church in Thessalonica. Hey, everyone, you think that the second coming is, is going to happen really quickly. But I'm telling you, the second coming of Jesus is not going to come until an apostasy comes first. Some of your Bibles don't say apostasy in this verse. Some of your Bibles say the falling away comes first. My Bible says apostasy, and that's fine. Because the original word there, in the original language, is actually the word apostasia, which means divorce, or severing, or separating, or falling away. And so here the Bible says that, that, that a falling away, or an apostasy, is going to happen in the Christian church before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now you can't fall away from an experience that you have not had. You cannot get divorced from a person that you have not been married to before, right? So Paul is saying to the Christian church, an apostasy, a falling away, a divorcing from God is going to happen in the church before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then he says, the man of sin is going to be revealed, 
And then it calls him the son of perdition, the lawless one. Now, just so that you know, in case you didn't know, there's another place in Scripture where the Bible calls someone the son of perdition. There's two times in the Bible that term is used. This time here, it's used to refer to uh, a figure who is a leader in an apostasy or a divorce from Jesus in the church. And the other time it's used is in reference to Judas Iscariot. In John chapter 17 and verse 12, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says to the Father, Father, uh, I have kept these disciples, the ones that you've given me in your name. And then he says, please continue to keep them. And none of these disciples that you gave me is lost except for one. And then he says, the son of perdition. And who was the disciple who was lost? Who was the one who apostatized or fell away from Jesus, right? Or divorced Jesus? His name was Judas. So Judas, Iscariot, looked like the rest of the disciples, maybe not like exactly physically, but he was a genuine and true disciple of Jesus. And if you lived in the days of Jesus and you evaluated the apostles, you'd think, okay, he's just like the rest of them. He preaches like they do. He walks around with Jesus just like them. But he had an internal issue, and that was he was covetous and power-hungry, and that led him to a place where he realized that Jesus wasn't going to fulfill his ambitions, and so he betrayed Jesus to the enemies of the gospel. And when he betrayed Jesus, he accepted some money from the enemies of God, and then he led the enemies of God to Jesus. And in, in, in the moment, at that time, when he betrayed Jesus, what happened? Did he walk up to Jesus and punch him in the face? Did he walk up to Jesus and karate chop him? Did he walk up to Jesus and do a flying elbow? No. He walked up to Jesus, and guess what he did? He gave him a kiss. And you know what a kiss is? A kiss is a sign of friendship. It's the communication of expression through a physical way, means, right? I love to kiss my sons. I love to kiss them. I just love to kiss them too much, right? You have kids, you just want to kiss them, and they want to kiss them, and you want to kiss them, and they think you're weird, and they just want you to get away from them, and you just want to kiss them, and kiss them, and kiss them, because you love them, because you have affection for them. And so this intimate sign of affection and love is used while in the act of betraying Jesus. So, so, so Judas, he's not like this person who violently opposes Christianity. He's actually a person who is part of the Christian family, right? He, he preaches like the rest of the apostles. He travels around with the rest of the apostles. And as he betrays Jesus, he does it with a kiss. He doesn't do it with, with a punch. And so here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, a falling away in the Christian church is being predicted. And it's, and, and it's, and it's attaching that falling away to the falling away of Judas because Paul's trying to communicate something to us. He's trying to communicate that that the greatest danger for the Christian church is not going to come from violent opposition. It's going to come from within, through subtle betrayal. And the great antichrist, the great betrayer, is not going to be one who violently opposes from, from outside. It's going to be some, somebody who subtly functions as an imposter from the inside. That's what he's communicating here. He's saying the antichrist is the one the falling away, the leader of the falling away, the one who, who, who leads the charge, is going to be like Judas. Like Judas. Apparently Christian, but betrays Jesus with a sign of affection. 
I said to you guys that I like to kiss my sons. And uh, I kind of manipulate them sometimes. This is just a funny little side note. So if they ever want something from me, I just usually say, hey, just give me like 10 kisses. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just let you know. You have to know what you have to do as a parent. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, when talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, describing the future falling away, he says that men are going to arise of your own selves, teaching perverse things, trying to make disciples after themselves. They are outwardly sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So the Apostle Paul, he's looking into the future here in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in Acts chapter 2, and he foresees that great trouble is going to come upon the church from those who are within, who betray Jesus with a kiss, who prostitute the faith, and they prostitute themselves, but they, get, they don't fully leave in the sense that they fully abandon the faith and outwardly oppose it. They actually destroy it from within. Okay? The text of Scripture goes on to say, who opposes himself and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now check this out. Some people think when they read this text that the temple of God is like this rebuilt edifice that's a model of the old Israelite temple in Jerusalem. And this Antichrist person is going to come in to this literal temple. And in this literal temple, they're going to like become a nice guy and a bad guy, and that's where, how, how the Antichrist thing functions. But in, in com coming up with this interpretation, they're ignoring what the New Testament says is the temple of God. If you were to read your Bible, in Ephesians chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, you find that the Apostle Paul teaches that the temple in the New Testament is not a physical building. It's a body of believers. And he says that it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So in the New Testament, the church itself is the temple. And so here, when this man of sin, this son of perdition, arises and exalts himself above God and all that's called God, and he sits in the temple of God, it's just simply saying he arises in the church and he sits in the church. In Revelation chapter 12 and 13, we've, we've talked about those chapters a lot. I just want to just, just share some, some things that connect to what we're saying here, okay? Revelation chapter 12, there's a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and the Bible says in verse 9 that this is the devil. We've established on previous days that yes, this is primarily Satan, the text says so, but Satan, he's a deceiver. He works behind other agencies in order to, to do what he does, yeah? And so in the prophecy there of Revelation 12, the dragon is standing before the people of God, waiting to kill Jesus as soon as he's born, and the devil did that through pagan Rome. So at the beginning of Revelation 12, we can say, yes, this is primarily Satan, but secondarily, this is pagan Rome. Because it's, it's the imperial Roman Empire that, that the devil used to try to destroy Jesus as soon as he was born. That's just simple logic. It makes sense. It's from the text. But now the rest of the chapter describes a persecution that extends far beyond the fall of the Roman Empire. When the devil fails to destroy Jesus, he turns his attention to the Christian church. And the Bible says that he would drive the Christian church into the wilderness for 1,260 days. And God would protect the church in the wilderness. And Revelation 13 expands upon how the devil persecutes. 
and it describes a pagan Christian institution with seven heads and ten horns. And this institution is set up by the dragon as the front man of Satan through which he gets worship and deceives the world. And so Revelation chapter 12, this dragon is primarily Satan and secondarily it's pagan Rome at the beginning of the chapter. And at the end of the chapter, which extends beyond the time frame of pagan Rome, which is described in chapter 13 as this amalgamated pagan Christian institution, that persecution at the end of Revelation 12 is not pagan Rome, it's papal Rome. Papal Rome, the extension of Rome. I was just reading this morning. Uh, there is an author, uh, a historian named Arthur P. Stanley, who in describing the fall of the Roman Empire, basically argues that Rome, although it fell, in one sense, it actually didn't fall in another sense. He actually argues and contends, and many historians do, like he argues that Rome never ended, it continued in a different form. And the form that it continued in was the form of the Roman church, or the Christian church, if you like, under the control of Rome. Someone might not like the phrase, hey, papal Rome, or the papacy, is identified in Revelation chapter 13. Well, if you don't like that language, you know what you can say? You can say it's the Christian church of the Middle Ages under the control of the popes of Rome. That's a nice diplomatically and politically correct way to say it, right? Because in essence it is. It's the Christian church. It's Christianity as in its fallen state under its Roman form, if you will. Does this make sense, everyone? Revelation chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. I'll try to be quick. Revelation 13 and verse 1, it says, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns were crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like that of a bear, and his mouth was like that of a lion. Now this is imagery taken from Daniel 7 that represented pagan nations. So this is an essentially pagan power. Interesting. Pagan Rome was a pagan power. And the dragon, the devil, gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Arthur P. Stanley, in the book I was reading this morning, he, he, he basically says, the popes filled the vacant place left by the emperors of Rome, and he received their, his titles, his power, and his authority from paganism. So historians basically say papalism is an extension of, of Roman paganism, basically. It's just a Christianized version. And so here you have a, an essentially pagan nation, or pagan power, rather, and he gets his, his power from the dragon. And then it goes on to say, and one of his heads were wounded really badly, a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth wandered after the beast and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. So when you worship the beast, you're actually worshipping the dragon through worshipping the beast. Just like when you worship Jesus, you're worshipping the Father through worshipping Jesus. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is able to, to make war with the beast or be like him? And there was given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about symbolic Bible prophecy and the time frames communicated in symbolic Bible prophecy, okay? When you see a time frame in the book of Daniel or in the book of Revelation, it is generally not speaking about literal 
actual time. When the Bible says here that this power, this paganized Christianity would rule for 42 months, it's not saying that it would rule for a literal three and a half years. What it's saying is it would, it would rule or last or be in power for 42 days of years. Okay, now, I just want to give you a, a few lines of evidence upon which you can base your belief that in the Bible and its prophecies, you should interpret days for years, okay? So put your thinking caps on. I want to try to help you understand something that's pretty powerful. Line of evidence number one. There is a symbolic Bible prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 4. God asks Ezekiel to act out, to symbolize through his actions, a prophecy about the future. And in that symbolic prophecy that God asks Ezekiel to act out, God says explicitly in verse 5 and 6, for every day that you act out this prophecy, it's actually really a year. So a day in this symbolic prophecy actually represents a year. That's line of evidence number one. Line of evidence number two is that every time in the book of Daniel and Revelation, a prophetic time frame is given, that prophetic time frame is communicated in terms that are wholly unique to Bible prophecy. This is to say, you can search all of the Bible, and you, you can look at every time frame ever communicated, and never communicated the way that they're communicated in the symbolic books of Daniel and Revelation. Why? If they're not unique in their interpretation. Does this make sense? If every single time a time frame in the Bible is talked about, it's communicated in one way, and then you see an exception to that in symbolic Bible prophecy, this is a hint that the time frame itself is symbolic and representative of a different space of time. If this makes sense, say amen. amen. Thirdly, like it just works. Like it just actually works. I was studying the Bible with a guy. The 70-week prophecy which predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the arise of Jesus in his ministry, and his rejection, and, and he didn't believe in the day-for-year uh, principle of prophetic interpretation, and so we were discussing it, and I was showing him the timeline, and I was showing him how if you would interpret a prophecy as a day-for-year, it actually fits perfectly, and then he looked at me, and he said, you know what? This is really scary. I mean, because if you just accept this idea because it fits, that freaks me out, and then I thought to, I thought to myself, well, well, would you be more freaked out if it just didn't work? Do you, you just want me to accept a way of interpreting Scripture that makes no sense and doesn't fit? Okay, that sounds better. So line of evidence number three, actually, it just fits. Man, it fits. There's a book called Selected Studies of Prophetic Interpretation written by a guy named William Shea. He is one of the most awesome biblical scholars on the book of Daniel. And uh, I think he's passed away now about five, six, seven years ago. And he's got about ten lines of evidence and when you read it, it's hectic, it's heavy. You'll be like, oh, it's perfectly obvious. Last line of evidence, evidence, line of evidence number four, that when you see a time frame given in prophecy that it's actually to be understood as a, as a day for a year, so a day in the prophecy equals an actual year, is that um, in, the, in, the, in the Hebrew economy, okay, under the Hebrew economy, under the Mosaic law, they actually had what was called sabbatical years. This is to say the Jewish nation divided up their years into weeks. And so there was just like a, a constant comparison between days and years in the context of the Hebrew economy. Because just like the, the, the days of the week are divided up into seven days, they divided up the years that way as well. And every seven years they would have a Sabbath. Just like every seven days they would have a Sabbath. Right? So their years reflected their days. And so in the Hebrew mindset, in the Hebrew economy, the day for a year idea was quite common. 
It was quite common. So you line all those evidences up, and I think you've got a strong case for a day in Bible prophecy equals a year. Are you with me? Yeah. You probably haven't heard of all those things, but there's like way more uh, arguments for the case. It's really, really good. So, this power lasts for how long, everyone? 42 months. You know how many days that is? 1,260 days. Did you know, if you, if you just look at the course of, of Western European history and you say, okay, is there a 1,260-day period where paganized Christianity was totally and absolutely in control? Guess what? Ding, 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 ding. You find it. You find it. 538 A.D., the Pope was made, through the decree of Justinian, a Roman emperor, the Eastern Roman emperor, was made the supreme uh, ruler of all secular and sacred affairs in Western Europe, 538. That ended in 1798, through the deposition of the Pope at Rome, through a revolutionary general of France. 1,260 years. It's just like, boom, there you go. Now, uh, I'm going to bring everything together here in just a second, but I just want to just share a thought with you that is really, really powerful, okay? So in the Old Testament, you have a group of people who make a covenant with God. Who are those people? The Israelites. And they make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And then God leads them to the Promised Land. Now, when they inhabit the Promised Land, are they, generally speaking, faithful or, generally speaking, unfaithful to God? Yeah, generally speaking, they're unfaithful. God sends them prophets and messengers. They despise his messages. They despise his prophets. They ignore God. They don't care about God. And so he tries and tries and tries to get them to stop falling away and falling away and falling away and prostituting themselves. And the Old Testament says over and over, when the people of God start worshiping idols, they're acting like prostitutes or they're acting like harlots. And so uh, God finally says, okay, I've had enough. I'm trying long enough. There's no remedy for you people. I'm just going to, you want to function like idolaters? All right, I'll send you into Babylon where they do lots of idolatry, right? So, okay, you can go into Babylon. So Babylon becomes the agent that God uses to punish Israel, basically. So the people of Israel go into Babylon. The nation is destroyed, and they get exiled into Babylon. But then, after 70 years, a remnant comes out of Babylon and rebuilds what Babylon had destroyed. This is a simple history of the Israelite nation. So, they make a covenant with God, they're unfaithful to the covenant, they go into Babylon, then they come out of Babylon. And the, the people who come out of Babylon is a remnant. Simple, right? Make sense? Babylon in the Old Testament is basically like the focal point of opposition against the kingdom of God. It represents idolatry, religious confusion. And it's interesting because that's originally where God took Abraham out of, or Abram out of. God in Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees. Guess what? That's Babylon. So Abraham gets pulled out of Babylon. The Israelite nation in the person of Abraham gets pulled out of Babylon. But then his descendants after making a covenant with God, just act like Babylonians. And so God says, okay, you can go back there. Do you follow that? Yeah. And then after they go back, they're like, well, this really sucks. Let's go back to Israel. Well, we'll go rebuild the temple that, that these guys destroyed. Now, the temple is where you find the true worship of God. That's where the true worship of God was found. That's where the truth is found. But the truth was destroyed by Babylon. And the remnant come back to Jerusalem, the right place, and they build the temple and restore the true worship of God. That's in a big, yeah. giant synopsis. That's the Old Testament, okay? Now, the same thing happens in the New Testament. You have a covenant, covenant people of God. 
And in Revelation 18.4, you find that the people of God are in Babylon. And the Bible says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people. So if the people of God are in Babylon in the New Testament, what must have happened? They must have gone into Babylon. Well, how would they have gone into Babylon? The same way the Old Testament people went into Babylon. They started acting like Babylonians. So in the New Testament, all you see is a recapitulation of the Old Testament. And John uses this idea of Babylon in the New Testament. He's just simply saying, essentially the same thing's going to happen to the Christian church that happened to the Israelite nation. They're going to go into Babylon because they've been acting Babylonian. They've become idolatrous. They have false concepts of me, and they worship false ideas of me. And so I'm just going to send them into Babylon. Babylon being Rome. Babylon being Rome. And it's both pagan and papal phases. So Babylon, the literal nation, destroys Israel in the Old Testament. They're the agent that God uses to punish Israel. And guess who destroys Israel in 70 AD? Rome. So the New Testament, Babylon, both physically and spiritually. They devastate the Jerusalem of old in 70 AD, and they devastate the Christian church with Babylonian ideas and practices. And Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 says, The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So the same thing happens in the New Testament. A covenant people of God act like Babylonians, they get sent to Babylon, and then there's a remnant that called out to restore what Babylon destroyed. Does this make sense? Yeah. Revelation 13, that's Antichrist, that's confusion, that's prostituted Christianity. And then the three angels' message responds to all of that and says, Babylon is fallen, Babylon is fallen, because she made confused religion, paganized Christianity, the beast of Revelation 13, the Antichrist of 2 Thessalonians 2 has made the whole world drunk. How has it made the whole world drunk? It deceived the whole world about what is the truth, who is God, Christian faith, deceived the whole world. And then Revelation 18, come out, come out, come out. There's a lot that we can say about that. Um, we could say, hey, Adventists, don't go into Babylon to figure out how to function. That's a good practical lesson, isn't it? Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why are you going to Babylon to figure out how you should function? That's not a good idea. Babylon's fallen, right? You don't go to a blind man to learn how to see. You don't go to those in Babylon to discover, how should we function? No, you know who you go to? You go to God. You go to the Holy Spirit. You go to the Scriptures. Isn't that right? Now, it's not to dismiss what God does through other agencies and other churches. Hallelujah, amen. That God works through every possible option he has available. Could you say amen? amen? I mean, if there's a headhunter, and he's like eating people in Papua New Guinea in 1952, and the Holy Ghost says to him, you know what, bro? It's probably not a good idea to keep eating people. And then he goes, you know what? I think so too. And he stops eating people. You know what the Bible says about that guy? In Romans 8, 14, it says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, the saints are the sons of God. Okay? You're a son of God if you're responding to the Spirit of God. But at the same time, there are organizational realities. There are institutional realities that the Bible addresses. And the Bible addresses Babylon, confused, paganized Christianity, that was started by the mother church, the mother church, the mother of harlots, and has been continued on by her daughters. And the Bible says, come out, be separate, run away the other direction. It, it, it just puzzles me, and I'm just going to speak very frankly with you, uh, because I'm a tradesman. I'm just a tradie. 
I'm just a dum-dum, like the rest of you. You know, uneducated and unlearned. So I'm just going to talk like a dum-dum talks. It just amazes me. It just baffles me. Um, how we can spend so much time and so much energy just like going into fallen churches that have fallen doctrines, bizarre pagan ideas and teachings that, that just base a relationship with God on external emotions and superficial feelings and lights Amen. and smokes and all this stuff. We can go into those places and be like, whoa, this is amazing. We need to do this. Right, really? Seriously? Like, don't get me wrong. There's godly people everywhere. And the Spirit's everywhere, working on everyone. And we can go into all churches and hear awesome sermons and say, thank you, Jesus, for talking to me. I'm not talking like we're better than anybody or we should be arrogant and cocky. Sure, Israel, there was tons of people outside of it that were better than the people inside of it. No doubt about it. But Israel had the oracles of God. And Israel's problem wasn't that they needed to learn more from the nations around them. What they needed to do is they needed to commit more to the God who was in the middle of them. Amen. 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 Do you know what I'm saying? Amen. So we have a prophet, we have the scriptures, we have the Holy Spirit. Why don't we go to them? Amen. Amen. You know, we spent $150,000, send our pastors all over the world uh, to go to crazy Babylonian churches. Great idea. I don't think it's a great idea. Call me crazy. Now someone's going to hear this and say, you don't like us because of what we did. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you honestly, that doesn't make any sense to me, especially when you have access to the Holy Spirit of the living God. It's like all the ministers just get together, repent, fast, study the Bible, and read the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy, and do what it says. Like, I went to this Pentecostal church, and they were so nice. You know, you can be really nice by just like accepting the Holy Spirit and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit too. Right? Like, I went to Hillsong, and they were so nice. What did you do? Okay. I went to like a Tempton club, and they were really nice there too. Right? I did lots of ecstasy, sold cocaine, and we were all really nice for like weeks and weeks and months and months. Whoa, so they were really nice. Let's hang out with them and let's learn from them. Like, cool. You understand, it's just, what I'm trying to say is a very delicate thing, even though I'm not communicating very delicately. <laughs> but you get the kind of point that I'm making. It's like, there's, there's, there's two truths of equal tension. And, and I'm speaking biblically, by the way, and if someone doesn't like how I'm speaking, they, do, can't, they can't refute the biblical reality of what I'm saying. So there's a, there's, a, there's a duality at work here. On one hand, you've got Jesus who says things like, the centurion, I've never seen anyone who has as much faith as him, no, not in all Israel. So I'm happy to, to learn faith from somebody who's not in Israel. That's fine. Like, that's fine. We've got to be humble. We've got to be humble. There's lots of people out there who have more faith than us, more of a connection with Jesus than us. And we've got to be humble and say, thank you, Jesus, for teaching us a better way through that Roman pagan who worships pagan idols. He has more faith than me. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus, you're good. Crush my pride. Make me more humble. I can learn from him. That's the truth, right, that we have to all embrace. You have Jesus saying, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. But God sent Elijah to the pagan, the widow of Zarephath. She was a pagan, and the Jews hated that. They're like, whoa, let's kill him. So, so as, as Jews, as biblical Christians, we've got to be humble enough to realize we can learn from anybody. But at the same time, that doesn't take away the truth of the fact that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, come out of her, my people. When John in Revelation 17 sees the horse sitting on the dragon, sitting on the world, prostituting herself and prostituting the faith, and, and just using Christianity for worldly gain, like, John's just like, whoa, this is amazing. And the angel says to him, why do you marvel? I didn't show you this so that you could marvel. I showed you this so you could marvel at the fact that God's about to judge you. Mm -hmm. See what I'm trying to say? Yeah. 
So anyways, uh, I feel I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get done speaking and think like, oh man, someone's misunderstood me. Everyone's going to be mad at me. But I think I've spoken the truth. Come out of her, my people. God's people are there, but they're supposed to come out into the remnant to rebuild what Babylon has destroyed. Does that make sense? So our call as biblical Christians is to restore what has been destroyed over the course of Christian history by Babylon, and that's central to our message. It's a loud message. It may seem offensive, but it's not offensive. You know why? Because it's the truth. Look, here's the basic facts of reality. You want to be sensitive. You want to be considerate. You want to understand that sometimes you're dealing with people who just don't know, they didn't, they're sincere in their heart, and, and, and it's rough and tough and difficult to accept what, what, what the scriptures say, but at the same time, you've got to risk being offensive in order to speak the truth. And the truth seems hateful to those who hate the truth. Look, I'm a real big advocate against abortion, and I'm going to be super, and half of you guys aren't going to come back tomorrow. I'm a real opponent of, of abortion. Okay? And I never was. I was always a pro-choice guy my whole life. You know why I was a, whole, a pro-choice guy? Because someone when I was a kid told me that that was the virtuous position. That was the good position. Right? And the further I got away from my educational indoctrination, the more I began to realize, those are people. <laughs> those are people. And I had a few babies. Like I had a few babies, and I hold them in my head, and I'm like, oh, okay, wait a second. And maybe it's not best to like lock those little dudes' head off and chop them in, chop them in the dumpster. And so, I shouldn't have brought this up because I don't have time to deal with it right. So, I'll just say this. Sometimes I make statements about abortion. I'm making a corporate evaluation. And I'm not saying that every person who's ever committed abortion is evil and terrible and nasty. I don't know a woman in my family who hasn't had an abortion except for my mom. But she only almost had two with my sister and myself, right? But she didn't have any, so we happened to be here. But every other woman I know in my family has had an abortion. I don't think that they're evil. I think that in many cases they were victims. I think that their lives were crazy and complicated. And I understand on an individual level things get crazy and complicated. And there's lots of reasons why people do things. And it's not easy. And we've got to be sympathetic and understanding and all that stuff. But when I make a commentary about abortion, I'm not commenting on an individual experience of one particular woman. I'm talking about a corporate reality. I'm talking about a big picture governmental reality where we have actually begun to profit off the business of killing children like we have as a civilization and as a society. 60 million a year in the Western world, little babies killed by tons of them. You know what's so funny? Like in our Seventh-day Adventist church, everyone's like all wound up about women's ordination, women's ordination. And like, oh, yes, last week 3,000 kids just got killed. Women's ordination, women's ordination. Babies are getting killed. Women's ordination, women's ordination. Babies are getting killed. Women's ordination, women's ordination. Babies are getting killed. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. And we're just like doing it in Adventist hospitals too. Awesome. <laughs> Great. So when I make commentary on abortion, I know that I'm risking hurting lots of people's feelings. But the ultimate good for the sake of civilization and society depends upon us stopping killing babies. You see what I'm trying to say? So if I'm in Germany and I'm like, hey, Nazis, stop killing babies, please. Or stop killing Jews, stop killing Jews. Like the Nazis are going to be like, man, you know, we've got feelings too. Like, okay, I know it. I get it. It's complicated, right? Like not everybody in Germany was a Nazi. But, but, but crazy situations come about. And if you're going to be someone who stands up and opposes them, you're risking offending a lot of people. And you have to ask yourself the question, is the ultimate good of civilization more important to me 
than the disapproval of one or two people whose feelings might get hurt because they don't understand that I really do care about them. You see what I'm trying to say? I'm not trying to be offensive. But in order to speak the truth, sometimes you must be offensive or risk being offensive. And if Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Can I offend some people? Of course. Um, Jesus offended people, but then he died for them. So to end everything off, I just wanted to tell you a quick story about a guy. He was a Navy chief, and it's just it's kind of like from the standpoint of God. Hey, um, okay, Babylon, Antichrist. We have to understand our institutional manifestations of the human heart. We all have a heart, a human heart that's fallen. And if that heart is left unchecked by the Holy Spirit, it manifests itself on the institutional level. It becomes a pagan Rome. It becomes a Babylon. It becomes a Medo-Persia. It becomes a Greece. It becomes a papal Rome. Do you see what I'm saying? All governmental systems are manifestations of the hearts of the people who built them. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So we all have a human fallen heart, and these antichrist depictions of scripture, this Babylonian depiction of fallen religion that makes the whole world drunk with untruth, these are just institutional manifestations of me. So it doesn't give me any right when I identify an institution to feel any better because, no, no, that's just me. That's just me on an institutional level. That's all that we're saying. So we're not judging anyone else. We're saying we as humanity, that's us. That's us. Let's all repent and, and be reformed in Jesus and reformed in the word of God so that we won't, you know, serve that stuff, right? So this, this whole idea of, of, okay, here, Jesus, Christ, the whole world, evil, sin, whatever. He dies for the world while he is forsaken in the most complete and total sense, okay? So you have thought in your life you've been alone. You have thought in your life that you have been abandoned. And yes, it's true, you may have been by your husband, by your wife, by your kids, by your friends. I get it. You've suffered abandonment and it feels lonely and it's fearful because you're a social creature. You feel betrayed, you feel hurt. It's a terrible thing to be abandoned, but you have to understand you have to understand that no one in the history of the human race has ever been abandoned in the way that Jesus was abandoned, okay? He's abandoned by every single being because every single being's sins are laid upon him. The priests are laughing at him. His disciples are running from him. God is forsaking him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does he do? He keeps moving forward in the crucifixion, offering his life for a world that's evil and filthy and polluted and sickening. And that world is a reflection of our hearts individually. So here's the point. The beast, the antichrist, and, and the, the harlot of revelation, God died for them. God died for them. And they're just an institutional manifestation of us. Amen? Amen. So I know a chief in the Navy. He's a pretty portly guy. And he was kind of cool. He had a funny personality. And he had a wife, a Filipino wife. And this wife uh, married him. And no one on the ship really knew why. And this guy loved his wife. But he was the only one who knew that she didn't love him. Dude, she was like a beauty queen from the Philippines, okay? This guy was like, a girl hadn't talked to him in 25 years, and there was a lot of reasons why. And it wasn't just physical, it was social. The guy was awkward and funny, and I said he had a decent personality. We liked him. But the guy was super awkward, super weird. He goes to the Philippines, 
And even though his whole life, no women ever paid him much attention at all, and he really needed to lower his standards and think a little bit more realistically, the guy just wanted a, 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 you know, a superstar, and he found one in the Philippines. And she loved him, and she loved him so much, she wanted to get married really quickly, and she wanted to move her family really fast to the United States of America because she couldn't live without her family being close to him, you see? Because she loved him so much. Not really. She just wanted to use him to get to his country. Oh, it was painful. So we all knew it. Like, but how do you tell the guy? Some people tried to tell him. He wouldn't hear it. She doesn't really love you, man. She just wants to come to America, bro. She's using you for your country. These systems spoken of in, in the Bible of religion that prostitute themselves are similar in nature. They just want Jesus for what he can give them, but they don't want Jesus for who he is. They don't want him for who he is. And this is the most painful and difficult thing, guys. This dude... She gets pregnant, right? She's in America. Her family's there. They've been married for like one, two years. She gets pregnant. He's so happy. He's so thrilled. He and the woman of his dreams are going to produce life. They're going to produce children. They're going to have a family. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to love each other forever. And we'll have our little kids. And they'll have kids. And we'll have a family. And they'll be happily ever after. But unfortunately, while he's in the hospital, and he's there in the, in the delivery room, the child is born. Now, he's white. He's a white American. And his girlfriend, or his wife, sorry, is a Filipino, now American. Or I think she's in the process of becoming one at the time. And the baby is born. And as they look at it, they think to themselves, well, this is strange. The nurses look at the guy and say, hey, is this your baby? And he looks at the baby and says, uh, I thought it was going to be. Unfortunately, the baby wasn't white and Filipino. It was black and Filipino. Disaster. This is how God has been made to feel by his people who prostitute themselves with other lovers. And did you know, he still stayed married to her. And he still raised that baby. How humble. How beautiful. How unreal. They stayed married. They had a family. A bunch of white and Filipino babies, except for one. <laughs> and he still raised it. Guys, this is God. God is good. God is wonderful. God is awesome. And we can identify systems of power that, that have prostituted themselves, but Jesus died for them. And he'll take care of them. And he'll love them. And he'll do whatever he can for them. Could you say amen? amen? God bless you guys. Let's pray and end with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the time. We ask that you bless us as we go our separate ways. Help us to consider these things and be provoked and inspired to continue to study more. Of course, God, we can go to other churches, other denominations, and we can learn from them. And that's okay. I know I spoke in a way that seemed to communicate that that was terrible in itself. But it is terrible if we go to other nations, if we go to idolatrous people who practice false doctrine that's untrue and misrepresents you. And we don't come to you. We have access to your spirit, access to your word. Help us to stop uh, showing you that we don't believe in you by going to the world to figure out how to be what you're calling us to be. Amen. Help us to learn from whatever agents you put in our space, even if they're not Adventists, if they're not believers. If you speak to us through them, help us to be humble enough to say amen. But at the same time, help us to come to you first and foremost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome afternoon. Enjoy the weather.